Well, I had several things, several things that now are gifts to me and treasures to me, but growing up were very annoying things. And uh, I just want to share a list of these things with you before we start today. Things I used to not like and now I can't live without. Think about your own list. Here's number one, naps. I hated naps growing up. Naps felt like punishment. They felt like prison when my mom made me take a nap. And now they're like mini vacations that you don't have to pack for. When I get the opportunity for a nap, it is a sweet gift and offering. Uh, number two is meatloaf. Meatloaf. I did not like meatloaf growing up. I used to fight my mom tooth and nail to not even eat one bite of meatloaf. And then one day the light bulb went on. A loaf of meat? I finally get it. It's so simple, yet so brilliant. A loaf of meat. I love meatloaf now. Here's number three, being married. Remember this mom when I was five? I was in a wedding. What was I, a ring bearer? And I remember getting in the car with my mom and vowing I would never get married. Never. I don't understand why people do this. I hate wearing things like this. I was never going to get married, and I wanted her to hold me to it. Well, I made it to 29. That's pretty long. But uh, now I consider marriage to be a gift because it's someone who knows the worst things about me yet still says I love you. Marriage is even better than meatloaf. Now, ideally, you want marriage and meatloaf. And thankfully, <laughs> thankfully I have that. But uh, marriage is a sweet gift. How about number four, coffee? Anyone still not like coffee? An adult who still doesn't like coffee? Your time will come. No, still not? I remember hating coffee. I remember taking a drink of my dad's coffee and almost like spitting it out. It was so nasty. And then I, I started to work at a bank in my mid-20s and I started to fall asleep. It was so boring. And I was going to get fired because I was falling asleep because of the monotony of the numbers I had to enter every day. So I drank coffee just to survive my job. And uh, when, I, you know, when you first start drinking coffee, it's like this much coffee and this much cream and sugar. Right? And then you kind of wean yourself off of that. And now I drink black coffee. Now I love coffee. I start my morning with coffee. I drink coffee in the afternoon. I drink coffee in the evening. Anyone drink coffee in the evening? Yeah, there's a few of us. Coffee to me now is like a pair of sweatpants for your mouth. Right? I, really? I love coffee. In fact, I want coffee right now. If anyone, Joel? All right, Joel's got his coffee. Sweatpants for the mouth. How about number five, boredom. I hated boredom. Anything to, to chase away boredom as a kid you loved because boredom was like your worst enemy. And now my ideal afternoon is to sit in a chair and stare at a wall. I have eight kids. I'm a pastor of a church. Boredom is now an awesome thing. I look forward to boredom. I don't see it that often, unfortunately. Number six, baldness. to be terrified of the prospect of losing my hair going oh that has to be the worst thing ever and now it's kind of a gift who has time for hair really I mean seriously I'm so productive without the need to style my own hair I get so many more things done so for those who've lost your hair you're in a good category sorry Joel not you brother how about this one number seven time with my mother Growing up, I did not enjoy time with my mother even though sometimes it was fun I looked forward to time with my friends and things like that. And now I love time with my mom. Now she's one of my best friends. And I finally understand, mom, what you tried to tell me growing up. I suddenly get it all. I get it all. And it's interesting, both our backs and knees hurt. Both mom and I, we fellowship with that. And we both find a great deal of joy finding a deal on good socks. So 
Mom and I have fellowshiped, and so now I consider my time with my mom a true gift. Here's number eight, slippers. Who wears slippers? Yes, yeah, and a bunch of us wear slippers. Slippers, man. When I was younger, it was all about Air Jordans, right? You wanted a good, fresh pair of Air Jordans, and now slippers are like Air Jordans for a lame old person, uh, which is what I am now. So when I get slippers for Christmas, it's like getting a pair of sweet Air Jordans. So if you want to get me a gift, yeah, I know, I'm going to have like 20 pairs of slippers now, which I'll take. How about number nine, things I used to not like, is old people. <laughs> when you're a teenager, you don't want to spend time with old people, right? And I'm talking about 40-year-olds and above. Because when you're in your teenage years, th that's an old person, someone who's 40. Now I love old people. And I fellowship with old people more than I do with young people. Right? Because old people don't have to show off. Because they can't. And old people are really easy to please. You just get them the same exact gift you got them last year, and they're thrilled. Like slippers. You get me slippers every year, I'm going to be happy. Number 10 thing that I used to not enjoy, and now I love and can't live without it, is the church. The church, because now they are friends who have been commanded by God to love me. <laughs> and they're in trouble if they don't. Oh, I love the church. The church is a gift. Well, of course, one more remains on our list and is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. If you know my testimony, I had a long period of my life where I did not value the Lord Jesus Christ. And now that I see, he's everything I've been looking for my entire life. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 34. Now we're going to read the whole Psalm together, but we're going to just sort of pick and choose a few verses to talk about today. But I want to read the entire Psalm because the entire Psalm is beautiful. Psalm 34, I'm going to read the entire psalm together. Let's start in verse 1. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh, children, listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. Amen. Taste and see is our lesson today. Taste and see. We don't have any notes or outline today. I simply want to walk through the psalm and just remind us of how good the Lord is today. 
Now, some of us are football fans, sports fans in general, right? Now, we're probably not fans of the Green Bay Packers uh, up here. We like the Patriots, but um, who's a sports fan? I'm a sports fan. Grew up a big sports fan. I like a lot of the main sports, especially football. Football was my favorite sport growing up. What I find so interesting, and I've thought about this many times before, is that we give our glory away to almost anybody, don't we? We give our glory away to those who don't know us, those that don't think about us, those who don't care if we live or die, those who will never know our name. Glory today comes pretty cheap. All you have to do is be good at football, be good at basketball, be a good musician, be a good actor, and you will receive the glory of men. And I think that's a sad reality. Because those whom we give our glory to oftentimes don't deserve that glory. Man does not deserve our glory. Man is fallible. Man is frail. Man is fragile. Man is temporary. I think our glory should be reserved for someone who really deserves it. And who, of course, is that? It's our great God. Our great Lord Jesus deserves it. Why? Because he's our creator, isn't he? He's our maker. He made us. God made us. We sit here today because God crafted us in his image. That's why we're here. But he's more than that, isn't it? He's our savior. When we were in sins, he saw that situation and he did something about it by sending his only begotten son to the earth so that we wouldn't perish but would find eternal life. He's our protector. Does God protect you? He protects me. More than I even give him credit for. God protects my soul from evil, from darkness. He's our shepherd. The Lord teaches us how to go, where to go, what to think, what not to think. He keeps us from error. The Lord shepherds us. He protects us. He saves us. He created us. Who is worthy of our glory? It's very simple. Only the Lord is worthy of that glory. That glory should be reserved for the one who deserves it. Our great God our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to show you a number. It's a very large number. Anyone familiar with that number? Anyone know what that number is? Seven billion. It is far beyond seven billion. It's a good guess. But yeah, someone's counting the zeros. How many zeros are there? I'll, let, I'll give you a moment. So who said it? Seven octillion. Give that man a gold star. Seven octillion. Seven with 27 zeros. That's a large number, right? A million is right here. A billion is right here. This is seven octillion. Does anyone know what this number represents? You do, sir. Do you happen to know what that number represents? Seven octillion? Okay, just curious. Seven octillion, octillion is the amount of atoms in one single human body. Do you know that? My twins love that stat. They're all about big stats like that. And so seven octillion, this is a number we've talked about for a while in our family. Seven octillion atoms in one human body. Just consider that. The amount of atoms that are circulating your body right now. Everybody here upon the earth. Seven octillion. Here's another number. Does anyone know that number? It's a tiny bit smaller, but not much smaller. Anyone know what that number is? 
it is 200 billion trillion. I believe it's two, two with 24 zeros or something like that. 200 billion trillion. Does anyone know what that number represents? Anyone want to guess? It's not atoms. No? Did I hear it? Cells? Cells? No, not quite. Stars. Well, I'll even say this. Known stars. Stars that we can estimate. Stars that, we, that are in our picture of what we can see in space. 200 billion trillion stars. Estimated. That's a big number, isn't it? Why do I show you these numbers? Well, it says in Colossians 1, 16 to 17, referring to our Lord Jesus Christ, for by him all things were created. All things. Every atom, every molecule, every cell, every star owes its existence to the same person, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul goes further. He says, in him all things hold together. Who keeps the stars in the sky? Who keeps the atoms not only circulating our body, but managing those atoms? Those atoms can't connect. You guys know what an atom bomb is? Right? Those atoms have to stay on their course. It's a bad thing when atoms don't stay on their course. Someone has to manage and make sure those atoms and those stars stay and go exactly where they need to go. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is that person. Are you noticing something different here? Someone who's worthy of our praise? Someone who belongs all glory? Notice what the psalm says again. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. Amen? Amen. That's what we do here. We glorify someone who deserves that glory. Someone who deserves that praise. Someone who's holding our atoms together. Who's holding all the stars together. The psalmist says, I'll bless him. I will praise him at all times. That praise shall continually be in my mouth. Paul said in Colossians that we should abound in thanksgiving. Abound in thanksgiving. Always be offering thanks and praise up to the Lord because he's worthy of it. Not because he can score a touchdown in some random football game, but because he's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the savior. He's the shepherd. He's the protector of all of us. Magnify the Lord. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The Lord is worthy of our praise. I hope you would say amen to that, that the Lord is worthy of our glory because he absolutely is. Fears. What's interesting is in two days, most of the American culture is going to celebrate fear, aren't they? And uh, yeah, in a holiday called Halloween, we celebrate fear. But what's a little bit ironic about fear is when fears plague a lot of our lives the remainder of the year, don't they? And they're not fun fears. There's no candy. There's no costumes with these fears. These fears are real. These fears plague our minds and our hearts and our conscience almost every week of our lives. We are plagued by some fear. We have a complex relationship with fear, it seems. Sometimes we like fear. Sometimes we despise fear. In fact, let me prove this to you. There are many people, may I would even say millions of people, maybe even more than that, who will give up their hard-earned money to go to a theater, to a cinema, and let someone scare them. 
The Halloween industry is a huge, huge industry. The scary movie industry is a huge, huge industry. We love to be scared. But do we really? Well, when it's fake fear, we do. Right? Fake fear, we don't mind because there's no actual danger. So we'll race to the movie theaters to see the scariest movie that they can give us. But sometimes there's real fear. And what happens when real fear is there? Where do we run then? We run the opposite direction. Fake fear we love. We'll give our money even for people to scare us. But real fear, we run away when there's danger. That means we have a complex relationship with fear. Does anyone know what this number represents? One third. That is 33, and it just keeps going on, right? Percent. One third. Does anyone know what this number represents? There's a lot of things it could represent. Anyone want to guess where I'm going with this? One third. Anyone want to take a stab at it? Well, it is good question, good guess. It's, it's, good, it's part of the trinity. But I'm going to go a little bit more shallow than this. I'm going to talk about how much we sleep. Do you know it is common, at least an average, that people sleep a third of their lives? Think about it. They suggest and recommend that we get eight hours of sleep a night. Does anyone actually get eight hours of sleep every night? Yeah, it's not quite that much for me. But um, typically, they tell you about one third of your life you sleep. So that means if you live to be 75 years old, 25 of those years are spent unconscious. Asleep. Isn't that a strange stat? You think you live 75 years and that's a long good life, but 25 of those years have been cut off because you're, you're laying there unconscious in your bed. That's a, long, that's a long part of your life that you're simply asleep. Why do I bring this up? Because to me it's interesting of how much we think we're in control and how little we actually are because who takes care of us when we're sleeping? Who makes us continue to breathe? Who makes all of our minds and hearts and organs continue to operate while we're sleeping and we're not giving any thought to it whatsoever. Of course, the Lord does, doesn't he? Think about what this number represents, 24-7. You heard that before? 24-7. That's basically every single moment of every single day. When someone says 24-7, they mean every moment of the day. This number represents our access to your pastor. Psych. Remember that name? Remember that word? No, that's not what it represents. I don't want to disillusion you at all. You do not have 24-7 access to your pastor. And why is that? Because I sleep one-third of the day. Just like you do. And I have a family, and I have other duties and things like that. You do not have 24-7 access to your pastor. And that's a shame. In fact, my dad did this one time. My dad told the story often, and I remember the story because it's such a powerful illustration. My dad, in one day, decided to call the President of the United States, the Governor of Pennsylvania, and the Mayor of our town, Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. In one day, he just decided to see if he could get in touch with any of those men. So he started with the White House. He called the White House and said, can I speak to the President? And I don't remember who it was at that time, maybe Clinton or something like that. And they said, no, of course not. Who is this? And my dad did not get access to the President of the United States that day, even though he had the number to the White House. Well, he said, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to try the governor of Pennsylvania. So he called the governor's house or the governor's office in Pennsylvania and said, can I speak to the governor? And they wouldn't let him talk to the governor, governor either. 
my dad was starting to get frustrated. So he said, well, I'm going to at least get the mayor. So he called the mayor of Clark Summit right next to Scranton, Pennsylvania, and he didn't even work there. So <laughs> no one could find the mayor. And my dad was, was making a point. At any hour of the day, he can't speak to any of the most powerful men in our country. But what does 24-7 access, what does it mean to? Access to our God. We have 24-7 access to our God. Do you know that? That any moment of the day, any moment of the night, you can call out to your Father and ask Him for help. You can call out to your Father and say, Lord, I need you. I need to speak to you. I need your help. I need your grace. I need your strength. I need your comfort. Isn't that an amazing thing to know? That you can go far above the President of the United States. You can go to your Creator, the God who holds all the atoms and the stars together and say, God, I need you. And He'll hear you. And the psalmist says this, I sought the Lord. I sought the Lord. And He answered me. And delivered me from all my fears. Amen. Man. Guys, and I'm a first-hand witness of that. I'm a first-hand witness of taking my fears to the Lord in the middle of the night. And the Lord hearing me and responding with his grace and with his comfort and with his love, saying, Todd, I love you. Let me chase those fears away. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Has he delivered you from your fears? I hope that you could say amen to that. Shame. Shame is another thing that plagues our culture. Shame is all around us. We often feel shame for not doing good enough, for not being enough, for not doing the right things enough, for doing the wrong things too many times. Shame surrounds our culture. Every day almost we feel shame for some reason that we're not a good enough father or mother, we're not a good enough spouse, we're not a good enough employee, we're not a good enough Christian. Shame surrounds our culture, and shame is a very big epidemic. In fact, I found a verse from the scripture, and maybe you guys know this verse, but I decided to take away one word and see if you could guess the word. This verse says, The blank is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the blank. I try, to I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Do you know the word that's etched out there? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can even know the depths of our depravity? And the answer is nobody can, except the Lord. And what does that equal? Well, that should equal shame, shouldn't it? To understand how dark our hearts are, how wicked we are, how depraved we are. That's not a good thing to hear on a Sunday morning, that we're so wicked we can't even understand the depths of our own depravity. And that just further takes us down into the shame but that's not the point of that verse, is it? Because the scripture says this and is very clear about this truth. The psalmist in Psalm 51 says, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. That communion we just celebrate symbolizes that cleanse, that cleansing, symbolizes that forgiveness. That God takes our sins and he cleanses them whiter than snow. A passage we just read from Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Do you know how far the east is from the west? The answer is infinite. Now, if you go north, you'll eventually start going south. 
But if you go east, you will continually go east forever. If you go west, you will continually go west forever. And he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. They're nowhere in the picture. Our sins are nowhere near us because God has removed them. He's taken them out of the picture. It is no longer a part of our legacy because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that powerful? Do you notice that? No shame. No shame. The shame has been removed. The psalmist says in verse 5, those who look, to him, look at him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Wow, what a powerful, powerful reminder and promise that the shame has been removed. We don't have to feel that shame anymore. And our enemy wants us to feel that shame, doesn't he? He wants to bury us in that shame because he knows that shame will make us unprofitable and unproductive. We'll want to lie down. We'll want to cover our faces. We want to do anything for the Lord. But when the shame is taken away, the Lord says to us, I love you. And once again, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You don't have to be full of shame this very hour. You don't have to be full of shame today. Your shame can be removed as much as your sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. Oh, taste and see. How about troubles? Anyone got troubles today? Anyone had troubles this week? Joel? Sorry, brother. I did not put that picture up there on purpose by it. Joel's car broke down this week, and so Joel's had some troubles, Joel and Bonnie. Troubles surround us, don't they? I mean, we've, we've talked about a lot about the pandemic over the last few years, but troubles is a pandemic. Troubles is a much greater pandemic because trouble is all around us, and even when you're not in trouble, trouble is going to find you eventually. Trouble, sadly, is right around every corner, and we all face troubles from time to time, and that's another thing that we don't really like to hear. Um, you guys, most of you recognize the scene of this movie, don't you? This movie is called It's a Wonderful Life. And in this scene, George Bailey has troubles. He has so many troubles that he's thinking of throwing his life away because he doesn't know how to solve his troubles. His troubles are surrounding him, and he's feeling the weight of those troubles. And we know kind of the rest of the story with what happens there. But it sort of symbolizes something that is real. Because the, psalm, the psalmist says this in verse 6 of Psalm 34, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. You ever been spared from your troubles? You ever been saved when there was no salvation around? It just seemed like you were drowning and drowning and you're dead in your troubles and there was no salvation anywhere near and then the angel of the Lord says in camps around us, for those who go camping, that's a great word, isn't it? The angel of the Lord camps near us towards those who fear him and delivers them. It's almost like he's looking for an opportunity to deliver us. Those who have trouble, we have the Lord present. We have the Lord near us. And the poor man cried and he was saved from all his troubles. And the psalmist is again telling us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Hopefully you've experienced these things. The world that we live in has a strange motto. They have a strange way of living. It's a sad way of living, unfortunately. It is eat, drink, and be merry. Why? 
for tomorrow we will be hungover. <laughs> Actually, the adage goes, tomorrow we die. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's a sad motto. That's a very, very sad motto. Basically saying we have no hope. Let's just live it up. Let's get as much pleasure and satisfaction and gratification from this earth as we can because tomorrow we won't exist. That's a strange concept. That's a sad concept to live. No wonder there are troubles. No wonder there is stress. No wonder there's anxiety around every corner. What's interesting and maybe even ironic is that the world looks at Christians and are puzzled because it looks as if Christians have blind faith. That while the, the world is living in pleasure and satisfaction, at least theirs is logical because they say, listen, tomorrow we die. And yet they see the Christian doing some strange things, living in holiness and love and obedience to the Lord. And it looks to be like a, a blind faith. For those who have been following Jesus Christ, is it a blind faith? No. It's not a blind faith at all. It's not a blind faith at all. In fact, this is the whole point of our lesson today. Maybe you guys have been to one of those ice cream shops where they let you sample flavors, right? Um, I think every ice cream store has this built into the system that you can go and sample, I think, as many flavors as you want. Uh, we had this one in Pennsylvania called Manning's, and they had 60 flavors, something like that. And they would let you have as many samples as you wanted of any ice cream that you wanted. You could basically go there and sample and leave. Um, and I think my kids kind of caught on to that strategy. But what are they hoping you will do by sampling the ice cream? I mean, it's a very simple strategy, but a very effective strategy. You will sample the ice cream, and then what will happen? You will want more ice cream. You will taste how good the ice cream is, and you will come back for more again and again and again and again. And it works. If you guys are ice cream junkies, you know what I'm talking about. You taste that ice cream, and that's all you need to know to come back for that ice cream again and again and again and again. Because it's so good. Well, the psalmist says this about our Lord, and I think this far surpasses any ice cream here on the earth. He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you notice it's not a blind faith? He says, sample him. Experience him. Taste of him yourself. Sample his goodness. Sample his grace. Sample his love. And you will notice that he is very, very good. And then he goes on to say, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. As a mid-20-something-year-old man, I was running away from Christ, running away from religion, wanting to live my own life, wanting to sample the things that the world has. And for a few years, the Lord let me sample what the world has. And then I came back at age 26, and I said, I'm going to taste of the Lord again, or maybe for the first time. And you notice what I understood that day? Boy, he's good. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. It wasn't blind faith for me anymore. It wasn't my parents' faith anymore. It wasn't my pastor's faith anymore. It was my faith. Because I tasted and I saw and I experienced the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what I did? I came back again and again and again. And I'm still coming back to this day. In fact, I've come so far, I've put my entire refuge in his hands. To say, Lord, I need you and I need you alone. Please Take me and use me for your purposes. You are that good. And the world doesn't understand that concept. And you know why? Because they haven't tasted and seen. That's why we went to do the fall festival yesterday. So the world, Littleton, our culture, our community could taste and see that the Lord is good. They could see those who have experienced and tasted of his love and grace. And they could possibly say in their own minds, I want what they have.
I want to experience what they have. Poverty. Poverty is an epidemic, isn't it? It covers this world. It covers Littleton. You don't just have to go in the parts of Africa to find poverty. There's poverty all around us. All around us. You will see it if you're paying attention, even in our climate here. There's poverty all around us. And sadly, it is the greatest, possibly the greatest epidemic of all. Poverty leads to despair. Maybe you've faced that kind of poverty before. I've been there. I've been to despair. I've been, I've been to that camp. And it's a really, really tragic place to be when you really seem like there is no hope around you. There's nowhere to turn. There's no one to turn to. You're on your own. How about loneliness? Anyone lonely? Anyone feeling lonely? Anyone lonely out there? I would have to say yes, because even those who are surrounded by people can feel lonely. You can feel lonely because no one understands your situation. You could feel lonely because you've been abandoned by someone who loves you. You could feel lonely simply because nobody gets you. Nobody understands you. Nobody wants to listen to you. Loneliness is an epidemic, and it's all around us. And sadly, it's maybe even picking up pace in our culture. Well, the psalmist has this one covered, too. He says, oh, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord? We're talking about despair. We're talking about poverty. We're talking about being down, downtrodden. Why would he say, fear the Lord? Well, he's going to go on to tell us, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. See, we talked about fear. We talked about the complex relationship we have with fear. We want fear as long as it can't hurt us. So we celebrate fear. Think about that. We celebrate fear. But if that fear was real fear, we wouldn't celebrate it, would we? We'd run away from it. If that fear had an, a moment of panic and terror, we would run away from that fear and hide from that fear. But the psalmist says, those who fear the Lord have no lack. Because when you fear the Lord, you have nothing to fear. Even the Lord. Even the Lord, his end game is not for us to fear him. His end game is for us to experience his goodness. The young, lion, the young lions excuse me, suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Fear the Lord and you have nothing to fear. Fear everything else and you have everything to fear. Taste and see. grief brokenheartedness i know we've suffered this in our church this past year we've had two tremendous losses pastor mark and pastor don and many in between sadly grief is all around us brokenheartedness is all around us we've experienced it we've had loved ones experience it there are some who are experiencing it even today it's difficult it's something that we seem we can't get over it's something that's always going to be around us <laughs> Now, most of you know that I love my children. I have eight beautiful children. I have a lovely family. God has really blessed our family. We have eight beautiful kids, and I really love those kids. I really do love those kids. I give a lot of my prayer, a lot of my time, a lot of my attention to my kids. And if my kids ever came up to me and said, Daddy, help me. Daddy, I'm in trouble. Daddy, I'm scared. Daddy, I have nowhere else to turn. 
Daddy, I need help. You know what I would do for those kids? Anything. Anything. I would do whatever I had to to take care of those kids because I love those kids. Because they came from me. They're, they're my DNA. They're my children. I love those kids. I will do anything for those kids. I will drop anything on my schedule to take care of the needs of my family because they're so near and dear to me. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think I love my kids? You're watching myself live? David is watching me on his phone. David, I'm right here, brother. Taste and see, David. That's okay. Let me ask you, let me go back to the question. Do you think I love my children more than God loves his? Do you think it's even close? Do you see the illustration? Notice the psalmist, what he says. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Why wouldn't he be? We're his children. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps his bones. Not one of them is broken. Have you ever experienced the Lord coming near you in your time of grief, in your time of need, in your time of brokenheartedness? I have. Boy, I was brokenhearted. For many months, I was brokenhearted over the loss of my dad, the loss of my previous ministry, and I didn't think I could get back up. And then the Lord showed up and he said, Todd, I love you. Todd, I'm here. Todd, I've always been here. Todd, not one of your bones, and he's not talking about your physical bones, he's talking about the bones of your spirit. Not one of your bones will be broken, Todd, not one. I won't let it happen. I love you more than you could possibly even know. And I'm here. And I want you to know. And the psalmist again is saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. But we got one more. And this is one that's a big one. It's called condemnation. Condemnation or being guilty. Now, God takes care of our earthly needs. Of course he does. He takes care of our needs. He takes care of our brokenheartedness, our grief, our suffering, our troubles, our anxieties. He chases our fears away. God can make our life better upon this earth. But that's not enough, is it? Because one day is judgment day, and we're going to stand before God, and God's going to look at our lives, and he's going to judge those lives as a perfect, righteous judge would judge someone according to the deeds that they have committed, because our God is just. What do we do with that one? Even if God loves us, even if God loves us as a father loves us, he's still a just and righteous judge, and he must condemn the guilty for him to be God. And every single one of us, myself included, deserve the lake of fire. We deserve to be condemned. I've committed enough sins for me to be condemned before God. That's, that's obvious fact to myself. And the scriptures bring this up. In fact, it kind of buries us in our sins. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul speaking, he said, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, which we talked about that. That's not a good pattern. We were following the prince of the power of the air. That is our enemy, the devil. And the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Notice no one slips out of that one. Every single person here was dead or is dead in their sins. Every single person. We lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. Now that is a bleak picture. Dead in our sins, 
following the devil, awaiting God's wrath because God is just. But if you flip to verse 4, in the same chapter it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead at our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Well, is God just or not? So he's merciful, so that means he's not just. Well, that he's just, well, he must never show us mercy. It can't be both, can it? Can God be just and merciful? Yes. Who paid for your sins? According to Isaiah 53, he was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. God remains just. He punished the innocent one for our crimes so that he could show us his mercy and love. We've been rescued. We have been rescued from our sins. We have been rescued from the condemnation of those sins. Rescued. Colossians 1, 13-14 says this very clearly, for he has rescued us from the domain of darkness, Satan's domain, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, rescued. All because of our God. The psalmist says this in verse 21 as we close, affliction will slay the wicked because God is just. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. There is a condemnation. There is a judgment day. There is a lake of fire. And those who remain wicked, those who have no interest in becoming righteous, will find that condemnation. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Who is Jesus to you? Is he your Savior? He's my Savior. I would have been condemned for my sins. I have enough sins to be condemned forever and ever and ever. But because of the Lord coming into my life and sparing me from my sins, giving me that broken body, that spilled blood, I am now one of his saints. And I've taken refuge in the Lord, and I, therefore, will never be condemned. All because of his rich mercy. I've shared this illustration before. I don't like this ride. It is called Max Air. It's in Cedar Point. Don't go on it. I would write a zero-star review on this ride. I think it's horrible. I think any rides designed like this are horrible. Uh, I don't like spinning in circles. Does anyone else not like spinning in circles? I think it's awful. Absolutely awful. But somewhere, for some reason, I went on this ride called Max Air. And I, my greatest regret of all time, because I was sick the whole rest of the day. That's not the point of the story, though. Uh, the point of the story is I went on this ride. And you could tell the concept of this ride, right? It's a big, circular, swinging motion. And it goes way further in the sky than what even looks here. And we went on this ride, and I, I like the harness. When you go on one of those rides, they give you the harness or, or the belt, the little seat belt. I like the harness a lot better, a lot better. It gives me a lot more security. Well, on this ride, it had one of those harnesses. And at one point of this ride, maybe more than one point of this ride, I completely came out of my seat because of the G-forces and the air, the air and the, the speed of this ride. At one moment during this ride, I'm entirely out of my seat, and all of my weight is upon that harness. And even in that brief moment, I thought, if this harness gives way... I'm a goner. I'm going to fly across the park and land on someone's car. Um, that did not happen, thankfully, to anybody that day. And I was grateful. But I remember thinking, boy, I put in a lot of trust in this harness today. 
100% of me is in this harness. I don't have one foothold anywhere else. If this harness gives way, I am dead. And that's a terrifying thing to do, and I would never do it again. But it is a good illustration. Do you know why? Because that's how the Lord is. He asks for 100% of our soul, 100% of our trust, 100% of our faith, 100% of our dependency with no foothold anywhere else because he will never, ever give way. He cannot give way by his nature. He loves us. He loves us. He saved us. He protects us. He redeems us. He takes care of us. And he's our father. By his very nature, he cannot give way. And I was walking around that park that day, completely nauseated. I had that beautiful illustration in my mind going, boy, I'm so thankful that 100% of me is upon the Savior. Because ironically, if you leave yourself anywhere else, if you put a foot on anything else, that anything else can give way, can't it? It can be a relationship, it can be a job, it can be your status up here upon the earth, it can be your health. No matter what you put your weight and your dependency on, it can give way, except your Creator. Except the Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalm 86, the psalmist says this, Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. In Acts 4.12, they say, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. In Isaiah 45, the Lord says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There's no other Savior. There's no other God. There's no other foothold. There's no one else that deserves our dependency, our glory, our praise, and our trust. Only the Lord. Do you believe that? Absolutely. To remind us of Psalm 8, or Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. My question to you before we close is, have you tasted and seen? And I say this to both groups. I say this to people who might be unbelievers here and have never tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I say to you, taste today. Sample him today. Put your trust in him today. Put your feet upon him today. Put your hope in him today. And see if he holds. See if he's good. See if he loves you. See if he sustains you. See if he takes care of you. See if he protects you. And you will come away with the same conclusion all of us have come. Yes, he is good. Yes, he loves me. Yes, he will take care of me. Yes, he is merciful. But I say this also to my Christian friends. Because maybe you haven't tasted in a while. Maybe you think you have. You've been around the church long enough. You read your Bible occasionally, but maybe you really haven't tasted of his goodness in a while. And I say to you as a reminder today, taste him again. And remember his goodness, remember his grace, remember his love, and give yourself to that Lord fully. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Can we bow and pray? Father in heaven, thank you for this lesson, this reminder to my soul, Father. You would think, even though because I'm a pastor, Father, that I must taste and sample all the time. And I'm reminded, Father, that there are many times that I try to keep my own dependency, take care of things myself, have my foothold upon my strength or my knowledge or my understanding or my family or whatever, Father, and have to remember today that all of those things can give way, and they will. 
But Father, you, you and Jesus can never give way. And you've proven that time and time again to me. Every single time I put my weight upon Jesus, he holds. Every time I trust in you, you're good. Every time I come to you for cleansing, you give it to me. Every time I ask you for help, you chase my troubles away. Every time I'm scared, I come to you and you support me and you love me. Father, remind us today how good you are. And let us taste and see for the first time if there's someone here in this room who has never sampled of Jesus. May they taste of him and trust in him today and find his goodness to be true and lasting. And I pray for anyone here who needs to retaste that we would today and we would find your goodness and grace so that this world around us can also taste that you are good. Father, bless us as we leave. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing one more song together. Please stand.